The Blues Connection on Brooklyn's Radio with Kid Jensen and Roger McCormick. Hi there, it's Kid Jensen along with Roger McCormick and our very special guest, Martin Turner from Wishbone Ash. Hi, Kid. <laughs> it's good to see you again. I say again because I saw you a couple of weeks ago at a fabulous venue in West London called Under the Bridge, which is a Chelsea football club, and they've got this, this, this really nice venue. Chelsea, as we call it. Yeah, they are. That's right. <laughs> it's a wonderful venue. I think it's my new favourite gig in London. Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Well, you seem to be having a good time on stage with your band, and it, uh, it was it was a fabulous gig. And I said to people afterwards, meaning it very, very sincerely, I had never been to a better gig. Yeah, it, I, we we all felt the same way. I mean, it was just one of those evenings, yeah. you know. It's just everything seemed to click. Yeah, wonderful. What keeps you going with the enthusiasm you clearly have with your music and, and playing live? And you've been through some difficult times as well, which will come to as the celebrated court cases. Mm. But what's what's your driving force to? to be able to get up on stage and still play, especially the older numbers from the 70s, with the enthusiasm that you once had? Uh, I don't know, really. It's, I, for me, playing music that I wrote many years ago, back in the 70s, most of it, um, I still find enjoyable, you know, both to sing and to play bass. Um, some of my other compadres, you know, back in the 70s, Ted... Ted Turner, Laurie Wisefield, Steve Upton, um, they struggle to get their head around the concept of doing that now still in, in today's climate because, I don't know, maybe it, they, they relate to it as something from the past. But for me, you know, Wishbone Ash music is has got a nice quality of not... It still sounds fresh after all these years when you play it it doesn't sound dated and old and mm. boring no that's right absolutely <laughs> so you still have those those twin guitars on stage that sound that was unique to you yes yes i mean that was the original concept <clears throat> really for the original band uh we always wanted to do that i was very good at singing what i call pseudo classical melody because i've been brought up on classical music mm -hmm. and um, at first, the guitar players struggled to to do it because we, we'd have to sing the melody and they'd have to learn it um, and be complaining that it, it was awkward to play. And then we'd do the harmony uh, in in a similar manner. It was a bit of a painful process, but it did give us um, an immediately identifiable, unique sound, or what they now call a signature sound. Mm, yeah. um, and we were very aware of that. Uh, and we kind of milked it somewhat, you know, because it was easy enough to do, um, even though it was a bit of a process. So um, the guitars yeah. so, didn't just play the same notes; they played notes in harmony with each other, didn't they? Yes, and and as I say, it was originally sung, so it doesn't have the angular quality quality that it would have had if you'd worked it out on a guitar, no. if you know what I mean. No. It's, I mean, it's a very easy thing to do. It was a little trick that we discovered um, and, and was easy for me to be able to sing any old, you know, melody. Um, but once you transposed it onto a guitar, it, it took on quite a unique sound, oh, really. Yes, as you say, a signature sound. But yeah. also your own bass playing. I'm not going to allow you to be modest about this, but your you had a very melodic bass. Some people said it was like a third lead guitar. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely not your average bass player. I've got, I've got a really unusual cack-handed style. 
and um, and I do get in. I'm quite pushy. <laughs> I get stuck in there. Yeah, somewhere between Jacko Pistorius and Mark King. Would you say? Well, I've never been what I would call a muso. You know, the guys you're talking about. They are at some point in the space-time continuum. They've all been the fastest bass player in the West. You know, I've never really subscribed to that whole concept and for me the only time i ever play bass is when i will go on stage or, or at a rehearsal i i'm a creative person you know mm. i can play drums i can play guitar i can play keyboards i can sing um bass playing is the easy bit really i quite enjoy it it's, it comes very easily to me but i'm quite natural with it i think it's to do with being hinged at the pelvis Oh, that you must know, help. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and being able to feel the rhythm. Yes. Which um, I took for granted, having been brought up from a young kid, immersed in music, you know, and uh, I can remember with my own children, um, because they've been bombarded with music, and then you, you go along to see them in their school production, and they're the only ones that can actually bang a tambourine in time, because you... I, I'd always assumed that you were born with a sense of rhythm, but you are not no, at all. No. It's something that you learn and that you acquire. Yeah. So who came up with the name Wishbone Ash? You, you could have been. Well, in fact, you were for a while Empty Vessels. We were at the Empty Vessels in the 60s, yeah, for years and years, uh, Steve Upton, myself and my brother Glenn. Um, when we... We were... When we started Wishbone Ash, we were merely trying to replace my brother Glenn... Um, we were a three-piece band and we were quite hung up on that format and we auditioned every player available in london at the time and weren't happy with any of them really we rejected them all and then we thought wow what are we going to do now we've got a real problem maybe we should think afresh and we considered a keyboard player for two minutes and then came up with the idea of why not two guitar players instead of one but they've got to be able to play together in harmony um that's that's a, a basic thing that would have given us something a bit different so we actually went through all the people that we'd auditioned and we invited back andy powell and ted turner to see if they would click together and and it was very clear that it had potential it was clear to everyone um I can remember we were we were getting down to rehearsing tunes, and all of a sudden Miles Copeland came marching in the room. This is your manager. This is our manager, yeah. Um, in the early days, for the first few years, and he was like, "Mark, listen, um, I'm trying to do business for you guys, uh, and we don't even got a name yet. You know, we we really need a name. I've got to have a name." So I grabbed this piece of paper that we'd written stuff on somewhat annoyed that he'd interrupted us trying to put together some tune you know look miles we've got loads of names there was marty mortician and the coffinettes which was <laughs> which was a bit a bit long-winded and then there was another one that he'd written miles had come up with jesus duck based on the two most famous people in the history of the world which were jesus christ and donald duck i'm like miles F off, we are not going to be called Jesus Duck, okay? End of conversation. Um, Save that for another one, I think. I, I, I had written Wishbone on there, which was the name of a cowboy 
who I'd seen in a western who had bandy legs from riding horses um, and, and they looked like a wishbone on his yeah. legs so he was called and I liked the name um, and I think there may have been cigarette ash on the paper so I said to him listen here's the name wishbone ash and he said right so the band's going to be called wishbone ash I said yes it's got the same shh syllable in both words so that's highly appropriate for rock music <laughs> um he said okay so he went out of the room and all the guys said uh is that really going to be the name of the battle i'm not sure about that wait whoa wait a minute i said listen we've been trying to come up with a name for weeks six weeks and more miles is complaining he can't do any business because we don't got a name so that is the name of the band wishbone ash until you come up with something better okay and here we are. I'm still waiting. Over 50 no, years no later. No one ever did. Wish very much. Yeah. Was Miles Copeland, did he go on to manage the police? Was that, uh... He went on to manage half the music business. Yes. Um, he managed uh, writing on the wall, was it? He managed Renaissance. He managed Vinegar Joe. Oh, yeah. He managed Al Stewart with Elkie his... Brooks and Robert Palmer. Yeah, it was, it was R.E.M. in his stable. No. What was the label he had? It was criminal. No, not criminal. In the early days, it was Scope International, and then it morphed into British Talent Managers, which <laughs> the 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 uh, group logo was Britannia on from the old penny. Yeah, and that was appropriate. <laughs> cheapskate um <laughs> and uh british talent managers collapsed um when, when during a financial meltdown a few years later um yeah but, but he was miles is great at um big stuff you know he could march into a record company and sell them the band and walk out with a check for a million dollars or two uh, and then when it came to all the minutia uh, and the day-to-day affairs, he, he was not so good. Uh, you know, it, it used to get very messy. <laughs> but that uh, twin guitar sound was very original at the time because what everyone else was doing, you get these very long blues guitar solos that mm. uh, bands like Cream had been doing and a lot of yeah. imitators of that. Um, yeah. And um, to have two guitars that were not, as it were, competing with each other but playing in harmony was... Uh, quite unusual I mean, yeah, it should require a fair amount of discipline and I, I wouldn't describe myself as Hitlerian but I, I was definitely the band leader and it's like shh be quiet do what I say and then we'll all get home for tea quicker <laughs> okay and, <laughs> and they dictatorial at all well they did tolerate me um, and I did used to let, you know knock them into shape and lay it on pretty thick I was very um, pushy um, because I, I had a clear vision of what we were after. And on the stage, you would stand between the guitarists. I think you'd be in the center, front center, and they'd be up one either side of you. Yeah, usually, yeah. There's so usually you, you one could reach them both. Stage right, <laughs> one, yeah. Clip them around here, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they, um, they, they responded well. You know, we, we knew very quickly what, what we were about and where we were going and what we were doing. Everything was in place. We had a decent manager. We had... Um, played supporting Deep Purple on a gig up at Dunstable Civic Hall. And um, I watched Richie Blackmore on... Great the s- guitar, very underrated. Oh, fantastic guitar player, wonderful guitar player. 
And um, he was on the side of the stage watching us for 20 minutes, maybe longer, you know. Who does that? Mm. I mean, he must have liked us. <laughs> Never spoke to him, but uh, about a week later, we get a call from a guy called Derek Lawrence, producer, friend of Richie's, um, and he had produced Deep Purple's hit in the 60s. What was it called? Hush? Black Knight. Black Knight. Hush. Hush. Yeah. Hush. Yeah. Billy Joel Royal. Yeah. yeah. So he said, um, Richie told me about your band, and he, he really liked your band and said you were really good. So I wanted to come along and see you on, on a gig um, with a view to getting involved. And we said, right. Uh, only problem is we haven't got any gigs. So he said, would you like to come down to a rehearsal? So he said, yeah. So he came down to a rehearsal, loved the band, said, look, a friend of mine has just been made head of A&R Records MCA mm. in Los Angeles. He is looking to sign bands right now. If you give me your recording that you've made, I'm sneaking into a studio every night for weeks and gradually getting a record made. We thought it was good enough to release. Mm. He said, let me take that to L.A. If you pay my plane fare, I guarantee I will come back with a stonking record deal. And we're like, how much is that going to cost? And he was like, 300 quid. Like, whoa, no way. We, we don't got that kind of money. So in the end, we negotiated him to like, he paid half mm. and we paid half. And he came back with a really good record deal. And he was written in to produce the first three albums, Wishbone Ash, Pilgrimage and Argus. Mm. Which were which we did. three classic albums. Yeah, we did with the same team. It was like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Why on earth we jumped ship and wanted to work with other people, I don't know, but... Mm. You know, it's just maybe it got a bit boring. But right from that very first album, there were very distinctive mm. uh, signals on that. You had yeah. a lot of jazz in. Um, there was all sorts the in tracks, there, really. And the second side was just two long tracks. That's right. Which was pretty mm. unusual for a debut album. Wasn't it, it was. Also, Kid and I were talking about this uh, a, a few minutes ago. There's there's quite a consistent theme in some of your storylines and some of the lyrics. There's a lot of sort of right. myth and legend sort of stuff in there. Well, certainly on the Argus album. Yes. And, and there are bits and pieces either side that were similar. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that I had been reading a lot of stuff in the late 60s, you know, like Lord of the Lord Rings, of the, Rings. Uh, the yes. trilogy and yes. all that stuff, yeah. uh, and was quite taken with it. The Argus album was definitely stuff that, you know, I'd been thinking about for years. There were big issues, you know. Um, Sometime World is a song that's actually about uh, the concept of reincarnation, believe it or not. You know, you don't get many rock songs... Not too many. <laughs> ...on that tack. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe it's not that clear, but it was, it was what was in my head at the time. Time Was is, you know, I've always struggled with this concept of time... Time and Space, you know, I wrote a song called Time and Space once. Sometime World, Time Was, there was always a time mismatch with me. So I was constantly struggling with that. And then you've got The King Will Come, which is pretty much an orthodox Christian concept yeah. straight out of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Which, I, you know, having been brought up in the church, I neither subscribed to it particularly or disagreed with it. I just thought it was 
uh, a really intriguing, fascinating, interesting concept. And it wasn't verbatim, word for word, from the Bible, but I took the idea from the Bible and wrote it as, as a rock song. Yeah. Uh, and when I'd done the first verse and the middle eight, um, that was it. I'd kind of said it all. <laughs> and I was stumped, you know, for a second verse. So my, my mate Steve Upton, I'm Steve, you need to help me out. I need a second verse for The King Will Come. And he's like, okay, you know, well, whereas I would do things very instinctively, write the lyrics in a flash, you know, two minutes, three minutes, Steve would be in his, in his room like this with a pipe and all his books and a bottle of wine, and it would be a three-day event, you know, an intellectual <laughs> exercise. Sort of flow of consciousness. Yes, and then he'd present me with, the, with this lyric. I'm like, wow. The checkerboard of nights and days is heavy stuff, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and he admitted that he'd kind of borrowed it from a, a Muslim book. Right. The Prophet, I think it's called, by Cahil Gibran. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so that's a very unique song mm. in that it come. contains two different religious concepts blended into one tune people will be delving into that <laughs> centuries yeah. ahead from now yeah it's, it's, and it's got a killer guitar riff as well which, yeah yeah it does it's a very memorable yeah. guitar yeah. Riff. very good guitar riff. so you were also different from your peers around this time because you found success in america where everybody wanted to make it america was the mm. was, was the place how did that happen so quickly for you i mentioned that because <laughs> i was paul gambaccini interviewed me about you from yes. rolling stone magazine and uh, yeah. it was fabulous to see you having the success in uh, in the states, yeah. Well, we we bumped into to Paul quite a few times in the states, and and he used to, he actually came from Westport, mm. Connecticut, mm. which is where we ended up living. Ah. yeah. Um, he's a sweet yeah. sweet man. Yeah, we as I said to you earlier, we I think we were unique in that you know an American band would put out records in America, and once they'd achieved a level of success and were known you know, then they could travel abroad. Likewise, British bands, you know, you would be the British invasion, mm. but, I mean, you had to already have a name mm. in order to, you know, go Qualified. and tour in America. Mm. We, we were unique. We were managed by an American, signed to an American label in L.A., and um, they wanted us out there and promote the thing from the ground up. We, we had an agent in Los Angeles, Richard Halem, and he got us on lots of tours that were going out. We played with uh, Backman Turner Overdrive. Oh, all the way from Vancouver. You, you ain't seen nothing yet. We played with uh, Chicago, you know, all that yeah. brass stuff. Oh, yes. wow. We played with the Jay Giles Band. Uh, Fabulous Blues Band. We played band. with Old Fleetwood Mac at one point. Or Peter Green. And, and then all the American bands. I mean, well, later on, Aerosmith. Um, we played together on shows we supported them they supported us depending on who was strongest in whichever town uh, ZZ Top we bumped into them down south they were on you know one of our shows support band they were just starting out first album we loved them Mm. They were a fabulous band, and it w every time we went down south, Texas, Louisiana, chances are it'd be ZZ Top or Black Oak, Arkansas, or you know one of these bad Jim Dandy and what would Dandy so or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> there were so many of them. Yeah. Um, uh, Blue Oyster Cult, Kansas, uh, Sticks. 
You must have had a lot of fun with these guys. Just yeah? loads and loads of them. And you, you know, we think, oh, they're really sweet little bands, all these guys. They all became bigger than we did eventually, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they managed to get hit singles. Um, we had, at one stage, we had um, Vinegar Joe on the road with us, which was Elkie Brooks and Robert Palmer. Now, Robert was very young, very pretty looking chap. He was beautiful to look at. And he was the backup singer. Mm. Elkie was like, you're the backup singer. I'm the star of the show. Mm. So uh, we we really loved Robert and we encouraged him because he seemed to be lacking in confidence. And we were like, Robert, listen, get up the front there, you know. We wanted him to emerge, you know, because we could see it was in there, you know. And he was, he was a fantastic guy. And eventually he left. Vinegar Joe had established a career on his own and, and did amazing things. Yeah. Got his hair cut. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a lovely guy, Robert, mm. and a brilliant singer. Very handsome man indeed. Mm. Um, did you find that these bands influenced your music? By yeah, being the everyone does slightly, you know, just little bits and pieces. Um, Joe Walsh, who we played with when there was just the three of them, what were they called? The James Gang. The James Gang, that's it. We, we used to play... Um, you see, I think the, the, Eagles, the Eagles copied you with that yeah. twin guitar sound on Hotel California. Oh, well, I'll tell you that's about right. that, yeah. <laughs> the, the, um, the warehouse in New Orleans, which was one of the biggest gigs down south, um, we all used to play there, and it'd be packed. You know, like three to 5,000 people. And you walk on stage, and before you got to the end of the first tune, your hand would be slipping off the back of the guitar neck because you were sweating mm. so profusely. Wow. It was unbelievably hot in there, and there, there was no air, con- air conditioning. Oh. They just had some fans in the ceiling to pull, pull the air out. Um, amazing gigs. I, I can remember playing there with, with Joe Walsh, and, and, you know, we spotted that he was, he was great even back then. Later... When we were on the road with Vinegar Joe, and I think we had Renaissance mm-hmm. on the show as well, Annie Haslam, um, and us, and then uh, Agent Richard rang us from LA. Guys, listen, I gotta get Joe Walsh out on the road, and I need him to come on your tour. We're like, no, Richard, sorry, we got too many bands already. You know, we're having trouble squashing everyone in already. So sorry. Said, no, guys, you don't understand. Listen, Joe's got a record out, and it's looking good. It's going up the chart, and I've got to get him on the road. You've got to do me a favor, guys. So we're like, okay, send him out, you know, ba-boom. So he was opening the show. Then he got bumped up before Vinegar Joe, or after Vinegar Joe, rather. Then he got bumped up after um, Renaissance. If the tour had gone any longer, he would have been headlining, we would have been support mm-hmm. bad. Because yeah. the last night, I mean, we jumped out of the limousine as... Rocky Mountain Way was playing and it had just gone to number one in the American chart playing on, on, on the radio and we walked into the gig and he's playing it on stage you know it was magic fantastic magic and what what a band they were really a great band you were um, hanging out with some great names you were making great music you had a lot of success yeah. did you ever have to pinch yourself and think what are, what are us, us four guys from Devon mm. not exactly a musical mecca you know, or making it on the world stage. Well, it was, I mean, it was only me from Devon, really. Uh, Steve had been born on the Welsh border and lived on the south coast. And he was from Hemel Hempstead. And Ted was a brummy. He was, Birmingham, I'm just going to get some fish and chips. <laughs> but um, 
Yes, it was uh, It was in at the deep end. Uh, you know, as I said to you, you know, most bands, you, you make it in one territory, and then you go in at a decent level. We started from ground zero on both sides of the Atlantic, dashing backwards and forwards, you know, month in, month out, because they wanted us out there. And, and indeed, for the first couple of years, until it really started to happen, a lot of people in the States thought that we were an American band. Mm. They didn't realise we were English. And then, you know, they'd be saying, hey, man, it's so cool that you, you, you know, you and your brother are in the same band. And at first, we did, well, we're not brothers, actually. You know, it's just a coincidence we have the same name. And they were like, no, man, that can't be right. You know, look at you, you look exactly the same. You know, because we both had long hair. <laughs> so uh, I said to Ted one night, I said, look, Ted, these guys are getting really upset when we tell them we're not brothers. So, you know, why don't we just go with it? You know, because we are like brothers, right? And he said, yeah, we are like brothers. So, yeah, let's tell them we're brothers. Uh, and then they'll be a lot more, they'll be a lot happier, less disappointed. Yeah. So that uh, maybe put it in stone for, for years that we were brothers. <laughs> and Ted, Ted still plays with you sometimes, doesn't he? he Occasionally, on your live albums. if I can uh, cajole him or blackmail him into coming out and doing a gig... Um, he doesn't want to really do it. Like I say, he, they don't want to go back to all that stuff they played in the 70s because to them now, as a guitar player, it's a bit noddy, you know, a lot of the riffs. and well, It was. They've, it's they've very, been there, done that kind of thing. Yeah, but I, I don't come at it like that. I come at it from the, you know, the lyric and the emotional content in the music and whatever's required, you know, I'm willing to do. Uh, and I really enjoy it when I play it, but they, they don't so much for some reason. Maybe because when you're a guitar player, you know, you go on this journey and you develop and you, you re they just don't want to go back to playing all that stuff. And it's a bit of an effort for them to do it. It's a feature of the times we live in, isn't it, that, that a lot of people, not necessarily of our era, uh, some much younger, want to hear the music that was produced in the late 60s and 70s. Well, there's, there's no doubt... need someone to play it for them. Yeah, there's no doubt about the fact that that was what some people call the golden years of rock and roll music. Yeah. You know, it really was. Looking back, it feels that way. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I can remember Miles Copeland saying to us, guys, uh, listen, you know, we're out touring on the West Coast, you know, come Seattle, Portland, and we're coming down from San Francisco. He says, listen, uh, we got a day off tomorrow, but... I want you guys to get on a plane in the morning and fly over to Philadelphia and play a festival with, with um, what were they called? Peter Frampton and... Uh, Humble Pie. Humble Pie, mm. yeah. Oh, Humble yeah. Pie. The, the Steve Marriott. Steve Marriott. Mm. We are like, fly right across the country. Are you kidding? You know, he's like, no, you, listen, we'll arrange for equipment, you know, so you won't have to take your equipment, just your guitars. I said, well, Miles, you, you know, we've got a gig in San Francisco day after tomorrow. Yeah, right, you fly back the next morning. <laughs> I mean, that's about, flying, that's about flying, flying from here to New York. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a similar yeah, kind of yeah, distance. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. But do you, do we you miss those days, though? We right? used to do all this <laughs> stuff, you know, and it was, I mean, it was clearly worth doing because we were playing to, you know, an audience of 10, 15,000 people. Yes. Maybe more, I can't remember. And during this time, you had so many in, uh, personnel in and out of the band. It was very confusing to remember who was... Well, we had Ted was there until 1973, four. Um, he was the youngest one. He used to sweat profusely 
on stage. You know, you could see it flying out of him, mm. the sweat. Mm. And then uh, once, pretty much every American tour we did, especially when you got down south and it was really hot, he'd end up collapsing and we'd have to take him to hospital and they'd be like, uh, this guy seems to be uh, severely dehydrated. Um, how did he get in this state, you know? <laughs> I think pumping full of stuff. You know, just get him back up and running, can you? you know? <laughs> and um, he he broke first, really. I mean, we you know, when, you, when you're dashing backwards and forwards across the Atlantic and you're working that hard... Um, six-week tours and it's relentless there's no you never get a break and we all needed a bloody holiday that's mm. all we needed three weeks off you know to refresh yourself recharge your batteries do your laundry even mm. and just make contact with the ground get yourself grounded rather than getting on bloody aeroplanes every day um you know being sitting next to some fat businessman who's kind of oh hi are you guys some kind of pop group <laughs> a pop you know? group yes a combo <laughs> and you know you you didn't get to bed till four o'clock and it's you're on a plane at 9 a.m it was really really heavy heavy going we all needed a holiday from each other um yeah as well as as, as getting away from each other for 10 minutes as well and ted was the first one to break he was like guys i can't do this anymore i've got to leave the band mm. um and he he had met this girl who'd, who'd come into the dressing room in new orleans i took one look at her and i thought "Ooh, gorgeous little thing and she said martin Martin, when I saw your Argus album cover with that spaceship on the back, I just knew we were on the same wavelength. I said, really, darling? Listen, I've got to go for a sprinkle. I'll see you in a minute. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I went off down the corridor. To, and I came back a few minutes later, and I, she'd moved around the room. She was now chatting to Ted. And he was, like, gazing up at her as if to say, you know, I'm a little boy lost. I need a mummy. Are you the one? <laughs> And, and she, and was? she was yeah she's a lovely girl actually i shouldn't shouldn't be unkind wow. she's lovely and they they stayed together for a few months and they went off to peru um to search for a place called the temple of divine light which was up in the mountains some alleged place that presumably if you found it you were supposed to attain nirvana yeah. or whatever it was anyway Nobody heard from them for about three, four, maybe even six months. I had Ted's mum on the phone going, I'm really worried about our David Martin. <laughs> you know, don't worry about him. You know what Ted's like? He's a survivor. He'll be fine. And, um, but, you know, it was a concern. And they, they had gone down there. They bought a couple of donkeys, gone off into the mountains. I think they'd been held up by bandits who'd taken all their money. I, I mean, it had been an adventure. Yeah. It had been a fantastic adventure. And, um, and they got back to America after about six months, I think. And I think they parted company at that point. <laughs> well, but, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was a blast. And everything happens for a reason. Well, um, well, Going back to the, the cover of the Argus album, which is one of those uh, iconic covers, an overused expression, but mm. it, it is instantly recognisable. Yeah. I always think Roxy Music copied a bit for the Avalon cover, don't you? Well, very similar in some ways. Possibly, you know, the, those covers were designed by Hypnosis, yeah. which was Storm Thorgerson and Poe. Mm. Or, or his real name was Aubrey Powell. 
another very handsome gentleman. And yeah. Storm was a character. He I mean, did a lot of album covers. He was Storm by name, Storm by nature. He did Pink Floyd covers. Yes, he did. They yeah. did Floyd. They did so many different bands. And they used to work to a bit of a formula where they would combine disparate elements and come up with something that was very striking mm. and um we used to have a great time working with them we used to sit down for a meeting with them about ideas for the new album cover and storm would say um right we're gonna do wild horses they've just been galloping they're all sweaty and a fire coming from their nostrils you know breathing heavily throwing their heads back and there's a black sky above them and this represents the the two harmony guitars in Washbone Ash, you know, these two horses uh, and Miles would be getting we could tell he was getting nervous, he was started pushing his glasses back on his nose like this and um, he said oh, uh, wait, wait a minute, god damn it uh, listen, uh, no we can't have horses horses are country and western yeah <laughs> Horses are country and western, which, um, yeah, there's an element of truth to that. But, uh, I mean, it would have worked. It would have worked great. But so then Storm would move on to the next idea, which was two guys embracing each other and kissing, like they do in Italy. And, um, again, representing the two Mm. harmony guitars together, representative of which, and Miles would be freaking out, you know, like... I'm not having two guys kissing on the album cover. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was like being at a funny farm, you yeah, know. Yeah, um, really uh, Storm would be going, ah, oh, Miles. If I'm not mistaken, I d- detect a bit of homophobia coming from you, you know. And and then there'd be this incredible, incredible kind of session, you know, for for an hour about sexuality and homosexuality and all the rest of it and it, it was it was brilliant it was they were, they were great fun those guys so they really were a picture of a back of a soldier sort of solved the problem <laughs> for the hardest cover yeah Pretty i mean symbolic. what was it, your favorite era in wishbone ash favorite era i don't know or favorite album well do you, you remember we used to call them records because mm. the, yeah. they were only vinyl yeah lps you know LPs, this is before yeah. the age of cd and then years later my kids would be like daddy how do you play this big black cd <laughs> <laughs> which i thought was so sweet <laughs> but um now back in those days there were records um primarily and i think that was actually a good name because it's also a record of where you were at uh, when you made the album yeah. you know like the naivety and choir boyishness of the first album and then the scattered kind of different types of music that we were investigating on the second album and then the cohesion to some extent of the third album they're all different mm. there was one that we asked the record company to delete about six months after it went out because we hated it um but they all embody what was happening at the time in the case of the argus album that was probably when the band was working at its most efficient you know in terms of um i had the the concepts hold by the scruff of the neck i've been thinking about the themes on that album for a long time and i was now getting down to piecing it all together and we we were all living in the same house i think andy was just around the corner in north kensington so we had all the time to really get together and work hard 
Um, we weren't encumbered with wives and children yet and properties to look after. We were relatively um, young and, and free to do what, whatever we wanted. And, and we did put in a lot of time on it. Um, and then gradually, as life goes on and you become more well-traveled and um, wiser and... Older. Yeah, uh, <laughs> older, yeah. Uh, I mean, in 1976, when all of a sudden Miles decided, um, wow, punk is where it's at. You know, all you guys, all you guys who play music, you know, me, decent musicians, you know, that's all out the window now. It's all about punk. And indeed, when he, when there were three brothers, there was Miles, Ian, who was our agent, and then Stuart, who was the young young boy. Stuart used to come home from school and, you know, we, he lived in the basement and we rehearsed in the basement. And he'd be like, guys, could I, could I come in and, and have a play with you for a minute? Uh, well, we're real busy working on a song right now, Stuart, but listen, come back in an hour or so and, and you know, we'll try and fit you in. <laughs> and, uh, and he always played the same way. Hammer and tongs for about two minutes and then he'd have to stop and he'd just keep the bass drum going till he got his energy back and then he'd get back on it again and he played that way right the way through Police's career um, my brother was involved in that band Kim uh, he was um, their sound man right from day one Miles actually didn't want to know because they weren't punk, punk yeah. you know they were actually they punk image they, well they, they, a little bit but they, they were on that wave of bands that were happening but they were actually I mean Andy was Session well into his 30s yeah. yes. he, he, he was a guitar teacher at that mm. point yeah. uh, on the west coast I mean you know Sting was a jazz bass player in a, in playing double bass in a club when Stuart discovered him and it was Stuart's band really from day one so that was a recipe for disaster because Sting clearly was the star of the show in that you know he had an incredible voice he wrote great songs and he was just you look from star quality galore yeah. you know yeah. and and so Stuart and Sting were constantly a bit at war yeah there was a power struggle there yeah. forever. But they were very effective. Um, but they were a great band. They had I mean, a reggae sound at the beginning. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I first, my brother was constantly, you know, you've got to come to a gig. I'm like, yeah, okay, okay. And then I go along to a gig, I think, oh, I can't remember the first time I saw them, but I went to a few gigs. The best gig I ever saw them play was uh, Newport Pagnall Bowl. It's an outdoor mm -hmm. gig and it was big. Uh, and they were really happening then, uh, and they they sounded blisteringly good, yeah. you know, really great sounding band. And um, my brother was doing a really good job on the sound. Yeah. Well, sh shall we come back to yeah. the present day? Yeah. Because um, you're uh, you're still touring, playing gigs, and so on. You're playing a lot of Wishbone Ash material, but it's also yeah. quite a lot of new material too. A little bit, yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Are, are you now mainly playing in the UK, or do you still? Uh, trip over to the states for, we 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 play in the uk um we go to europe um holland and germany mainly occasionally poland austria switzerland scandinavia very rarely and if fans are looking for you now they look out for martin turner x wishbone ash that's it x, x, x wishbone ash we also we have been to the states mm. 
very difficult market the usa is is so many people you know competing there um very difficult to make it pay because it's expensive to go to america we 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 go we do better in south america really yeah yes. brazil uh, and also japan and are you um, the, throughout your career as a band mm. and right up to present there's quite a lot of jazz in your music isn't there even scat singing yeah 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 uh, is, is that still a, a strong interest for you i was you know with, with my brother glenn i mean we we were into jazz in and jazz and blues it, it right the way through the 60s we were very fond of a, a quartet called the brother jack mcduff quartet and in fact we ended up doing one of their tunes on the pilgrimage album um well that's this that's this yeah yes. that's that's a jack mcduff um song yeah and he was an organ player black guy uh he had uh, his sax player was red holloway joe, drummer was joe jukes but they they were a great band and they did a couple of live albums that had a really lovely atmosphere on them jack mcduff used to play the bass line on the organ pedals right that was what was so incredible uh and it, it was brilliant music really really nice music i also got into um uh sax players um i actually saw coleman hawkins really great yeah when he came to england to do yeah. a tour one of the uh, absolute legends that would have been 67 or 68 he played a gig in exeter mm -hmm. and i went to see him play and he was fabulous because lo always loved saxophone it's a very american instrument mm. sax and, and uh, of the bands uh, that are around now whether they're new or they've been around for ages which are the ones that you really Listen to the most. Who, who are your favourite? By the way, Buddy Rich. I saw Buddy oh, Rich. Yeah, really? yeah. I saw Buddy Rich play at uh, what's it called? Famous Jazz Club in Soho. Uh, Ronnie Scott. Ronnie Scott's. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. He, I mean, I watched him from ten feet away. You know. Yeah. And he had Nat King Cole's daughter on with him, Natalie Cole. Yes. Oh, a wonderful. Um, sorry, you were so saying about the modern band, bands. The bands now? that are around now, who 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 would you like to listen to? Ah, there's some good bands. I saw a band on a on a, a festival stage a couple of years back up north uh, that I really liked. They were called the Baghdadis. Oh yeah, which was thought interesting was, name. Yeah. Well, I thought that was a really <laughs> Maybe cool we'll name. Well, on that one, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a, a really good name. Uh, they were a really really good band. Yeah. And, you know, we do see other bands that, that you know, like, pique your interest. You know, they, it, there's something really good there. I was very fond of a band from Sheffield called the Comsat Angels. Oh, yeah. yeah. Back in the 80s, that would have been, I suppose, 1980s. Yeah. More in more um, recent days. I mean, I, I'm still rediscovering stuff. I mean, we, my daughter played me a tune the other day. It was Jimmy Somerville singing Oh, yes, yes. Uh, And it was the first thing they put out. I forget oh. what it was. Bronsky Beat. Bronsky Beat. That was it. Bronsky Beat. And it sounded so good. It sounded great. Very high voice. Like, it? I remember that. He's got a fantastic voice. Yeah. Um, Mark Almond as well. Yeah. Um, Tainted Love. Oh, yeah. Um, he's he's uh, has the same publicist as we do. And I really want to get along... Uh, and see him perform one day because I, I think he's quite uh, entertaining. You mm. know, yes. he, he's he's mm. got a certain style. He's living um, in Moscow, I think, or has been living in Moscow. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, I was brought up on Russian classical music, 
you know, Shostakovich, yeah, Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky. I love all that stuff. So you intend to do pictures at an exhibition? Or someone had already well, done that? Well, <laughs> I think there's two different forms, isn't it? All these, when people try and do I, I thought Emerson, Lake and Palmer did a good job on they that, did, actually. They did, yeah. I, I really did. Um, but um, I, I listen to classical music all the time. Uh, usually when I don't want to be disturbed, uh, you know, switch the phone off. Quite often if I'm doing something like ironing, ironing, <laughs> who yeah, does ironing? You are a rock star right. at home doing Robert ironing, Plant, listening to classical music. I quite like <laughs> ironing, right? Well, this was in a, in a contract for, for Led Zeppelin that Robert Plant had to have an ironing board. In a, oh, right, yeah. That makes sense, yeah. <laughs> I can dig it. I mean, nobody irons anymore, but I like to iron because I can. it enables me to... It's. It is so I know how to do it so well that I don't have to think about it. So it, it gives my imagination freedom to go off yeah. where the music takes me, and um, I love listening to that stuff. Well, next time we see you live, we're going to pay particular attention to the crease in your trousers. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm quite scruffy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not particularly smart. Um, never have been. I mean, look at my hair. Um, well, that's a that's a style. That's that it, just it is. Yeah, I mean, it, but it, it's not a style. It's just like, don't make me look like a bank clerk or a choir boy. You know, just hack it. He's yeah. a bit Rod Stewart. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I used to go to the same hairdresser, Denny, yeah. in yeah, Beecham Place. Yeah, yeah. Rod Stewart went there. We went there. Queen, there were quite a few rock and rollers, UFO. Yeah, you had a way of uh, yeah, we we stick out. <laughs> we all, all used to end up round at Danny's flat back late at night, and he, he had a flat in Putney. Martin, it's been fantastic having you on, yeah. on the, well, the podcast. Well, I say, I'm good at chatting, and, um, I'm full of rock and roll stories. I think uh, I think we'll probably have to back you, have you back for part two. For, uh, all right. We'll, we'll make this a double album, a I'm double always, podcast. always up for it, yeah. So uh, we'll have you back again soon, I hope, Martin. It's been a lot of fun. We look okay. forward to seeing... I've Martin, enjoyed it very Martin much. And, uh, as, as you may have spotted, I'm quite good at yapping. So mm. it's been a pleasure, Roger. Lots of great stuff. It. It's good, great to see you. Always good and to see you. Yeah. <laughs> OK, bye for now. Thanks. Bye. The Blues Connection on Brooklyn's Radio with Kid Jensen and Roger McCormick.